Let us give our attention once again to the reading of God's word. We will consider the first 12 verses this morning. After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Carry neither purse nor scrip nor shoes and salute no man by the way. And into whatsoever house ye enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if the son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. And in the same house remain eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house, and into whatsoever city ye enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And heal the sick that are therein and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But into whatsoever city ye enter and they receive you not, go your way out into the streets of the same and say, Even the very dust of your city which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But I say unto you, that it shall be more tolerable in that city, in that day, for Sodom than for that city. Amen. May God bless this solemn word. Let us pray for the preaching. O holy God, we come now to the preaching of the word and we pray for divine help on the minister, uh, thy servant that preaches the word of God. We pray that you would humble thy servant to preach the truth of the word and nothing more. We pray that you would give him the heart and compassion of Christ for lost sinners, that he would plead with men not only to pray for laborers to go, but also that they might go and also those that are not yet in Christ may come and receive Christ as this is the minister's commission. We pray for the people of God who will hear the word now. May they rejoice to see the Lord of the harvest in this text and also be committed to praying for the things that are agreeable to his will. We pray, Lord, in all these things that the Spirit would fill this time now, for we are in great need of his ministry. For both the man who preaches is weak and so are the ears and hearts that will hear And so we say, Father, with one accord, speak, Lord, for thy servants heareth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are many texts that the Lord has designed to convict us and to encourage us in the way we ought to go. This text before us is truly a text meant to convict us as a church, as the church of Jesus Christ, not just this body, but every body. Because Christ says that the fields are ripe, the harvest is ripe, and there are many souls that are ripe to enter into the kingdom of God. And our great sin, especially in the American church that is so, the American Reformed Church, let me put it that way, that is so at ease, is to not have a burden and a care that there are many souls perishing. And yet we will not even pray that men would be sent into the field, much less exert ourselves to go into it. And really the proof that we have a lukewarmness about ourselves and a lack of care for those that perish is simply found in this. How often 
do we as a church and as individuals pray for laborers to go into the harvest? The fact that we won't even get on our knees and and spend time with the Lord pleading, Lord of the harvest, send laborers, shows really that the disconnect is really the fact that we don't care that there are those souls out there that need to hear the word of life, who need to come and be reconciled to God and Jesus Christ. And because we don't care, we don't pray. And we don't even ask uh, men and boys whether we might be called to go into the field. And Jesus promises to us that the fields are ripe and that if we would send, if we would pray, if we might go, if we are called, then many souls will come into the kingdom. And as we consider perhaps the sorry state of evangelical churches today and how those who hold fast to the word of God, those especially who call themselves reformed, and we see how small they are and how they often are dwindling in size, we have to ask if the controversy the Lord has with us is that we don't go into the harvest. Why should I add any to the body when you don't even go into the harvest and don't care? And so what we have to do is we need to kindle the urgency and need for gospel laborers to be sent out. And this is an encouragement for us as well when we understand why Christ sends men into the field. When we see his heart of compassion on the lost, we would have a great encouragement that if we ourselves have received the words of life, it is because Christ sent somebody to us out of mercy that we would know the Lord Jesus. And so... Our theme this morning is the pressing need to send gospel laborers. The pressing need to send gospel laborers. And we'll consider under three heads this morning. First is Christ's harvest. Second is Christ's labors. And third is Christ's urgency. First is Christ's harvest. Now, just as a preliminary matter, uh, Christ is restating many of the same um, directives. He gave the 12 in Luke 9, the first six verses. We consider that uh, a while back. And I'm not going to retread that ground. Wherever there is a a, a restatement of something the Lord has said, I will not consider that mostly today so that we can consider what is new in our text. And if you'd like to review that sermon from Luke 9, 1 through 6, you can do that to see the things that I might gloss over today. There's more than enough in this pericope uh, to deal with. Uh, And so at this time here, uh, Christ expands from his 12 disciples out to 70. And he sent more men to ingather a greater harvest of souls into his kingdom. And you might ask, why 70? Well, as you may know, boys and girls, 70 has a great biblical significance. Uh, Just as 12 does, right? Christ sent 12 disciples as an analog to the 12 tribes of Israel uh, and the 12 sons of of Jacob. These 70 are Christ's analog to Moses'. 70 elders from Numbers chapter 11. When the Lord told Moses to choose 70 men to be elders and officers over Israel. And I won't go into much more detail in that, but what you see here is Christ fulfilling Moses' prophecy that one greater than Moses would come, a greater prophet than Moses. And we see here the one greater than Moses that fulfills every promise of God made through Moses being fulfilled, that the kingdom of God has truly come in Christ and her king has come as well, Jesus. Now, 
As we consider these 70 men, you might ask, what do we know of them? And the answer is really very little. However, one thing you know about them is their character. Uh, These are the men who made it through the sifting process that the Lord had uh, at the end of uh, Luke chapter 9. You remember, there were men who pledged, I will go whithersoever thou goest. There are men, he said, follow me. And these men made excuses. And here you find the men that were sifted out of that. These are the men that Jesus ascertained would truly follow him whithersoever he goest. These are men filled with the Holy Ghost who would truly leave all, even their families, to follow Jesus Christ. Because they even seem to have stuck with him after he went to his cross. You know, when the church sought to replace Judas, Peter surveyed the 120 disciples that were remaining And he said, speaking of uh, Judas's this prophecy, right? uh, His bishopric let another take. Whereof, of these men, which have companied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. That's Acts 1, verses 20 and 21. He's saying that of these 120 men, they have been with us the entire time that Jesus went in and out among us. And so these 70 were likely among the 120. These are the faithful disciples who stuck with the Lord, who left all, even when it was not popular to be with the Lord, who accompanied with the twelve all the time the Lord ministered. And of course, that's why Matthias is taken out of their number. And perhaps Matthias is one of these first 70 men. Well, these are the men, of course, Christ was seeking in the last chapter. So that's their character. What is their charge? Jesus said that they are laborers, laborers. And the Greek word here used, boys and girls, is often used uh, for agricultural workers, uh, harvesters. And that's significant because he sends them into what he calls the harvest. And before, and we'll consider the laborers and the nature of their labor in the next heading, but before we consider the laborers, perhaps we ought to consider the harvest that they are sent into, which is really the substance of this first head. Christ spoke of it in verse 2. He said, the harvest truly is Great. Now, children, boys and girls, uh, is the Lord speaking of a physical crop like corn or wheat? No, this is something far more precious. This is a harvest of souls, a harvest of men, women, and yes, children too. These are Christ's elect uh, that need to be ingathered into the kingdom of God. They were planted in the world, but they were never meant to be of the world. They were predestinated at some time to come into the kingdom of grace. And Jesus says, this is his harvest. This is my harvest. It belongs to him. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. This harvest belongs to him, is purchased by him on the cross. It is in some sense a bloody harvest as it has been purchased by the very life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it doesn't belong to those who harvest. The fruit of it really belongs to Christ. And how does Christ relate to the harvest? Does he see it as a kind of dollar signs, as some perhaps um, agricultural tycoon might? No. He has another motivation for bringing in the harvest. A A blessed one. A blessed one. Why does he send them? Well, in our parallel text in Matthew 9, it's 36th verse. 
We see why Jesus sent them. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Thus saith he unto his disciples, listen to this, the harvest truly is plenteous, but here's the lament, the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. The Lord, when he looks on the fields, is moved with compassion on what he sees. He saw their dread condition. The the religious rulers who were not shepherding them, the Pharisees did not lead them to Christ to have eternal life. No one came, right? You see that they were wearied. No one came to feed them the word of God by which they may grow. They fainted without the word, right? This is not just physical hunger. This is a spiritual hunger and famishment. They don't know where to go to get spiritual food. No one came to proclaim the gospel and they would perish without it. And our Lord saw this and what was his reaction? He himself was moved by it. It was a sight in some sense that was truly awful to him. So many souls going to hell if they did not hear the gospel. We have heard already that he came, right, to save men's lives by giving his own as a ransom for many. The the condition of these people is dear to him. The Savior wept over Jerusalem later on. Do you doubt his compassion for souls? Brethren, why did Christ go to his cross? It was compassion for souls. Peter, I mean, not Peter, Paul later would write what? That the Son of God loved me, therefore what? He gave himself for me. This is what Christ sees. This is the consistent testimony of the scripture, that Christ sees sinners, he loves them, has compassion on them, and on his elect, he has died for them out of love. When Christ sends ministers to preach. Why does he do it? It's out of compassion for sinners. One reason we don't pray for laborers, support them, or ask if we ourselves are called is simply we just don't have the heart of Christ. The heart of God, really, for the harvest. Christ sees sheep gone astray. Christ sees sinners. And what does he do? He has compassion. We see Uh, 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 sheep gone astray. We see sinners and what's in our heart? Apathy. Perhaps self-righteousness. And yet the one man who could claim to be self-righteous, Jesus Christ, and I mean that in the positive sense, had compassion on sinners. Believer, why in the world are you even saved? Is it not because the Lord has had pity on you? And has compassion on you. Do we not sing with joy the 103rd Psalm. That as far as the east is from west. So far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children. So the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Forget that brethren. And you will lose your assurance of salvation. Or you will think of yourself as self-righteous. That I don't need the pity of God in Christ on me. And you're making it to heaven in your imaginary self-righteousness. 
but also you will lose an urgency and heart for evangelism and missions. You'll never say to your soul, I have received so much mercy and pity and compassion from the Lord. How can I not extend what I have received to others? Well, now that you have seen that the harvest is a harvest of souls, next see the scope of the harvest. Jesus sent them two by two, two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. The harvest is vast. It's in many cities. It's in many places. Really, you can just put it this way. It's in every place, every place. He said in the next verse, the harvest truly, this is the truth of God is great. It is great. It is vast. And do you remember what the harvest will look like when it is fully ingathered? Revelation 7, 9, And I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which what? No man could number. Out of what places? Was it out of McKinney? Was it out of Jerusalem? No. Out of all nations and uh, kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. This is the harvest of souls, beloved. And this is where they come from, every place. No man can even number it, but God only. That's how vast it is. The fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerable as the stars in heaven. And boys and girls, you know, as we know more and more about our universe that God has created, we are finding more and more stars. There's a vast harvest And from what places does it come from? Is any place excluded? No. The harvest comes from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. Have you and I lost sight of these kinds of first things in the Bible? Of how vast and glorious this vision is. And whenever we lose sight of it, whenever we lose track of it, we lose a sense of our need to bring in the harvest. Because at the end of the day, beloved, who does God call to do it? It's his church. You think maybe it's a different church or different denomination that's called to do it. We are. Every church, every denomination that names the name of Christ. We are far too comfortable with our congregations being comfortable, beloved. Especially for contemporary Reformed American, at least, Reformed and Presbyterian churches, Too much comfort, too little compassion. Just put it that way. Even though the harvest is absolutely staggering, beloved, and Christ sent his men into every place that he himself would go. And here's the question. Where will Christ not go? He goes to every place, doesn't he? Or he has an intention to. In glory, you will see that he has gone to every place on earth that he has made men to dwell. Yet even in our own nation, so many cities, usually in poor and neglected places, have no gospel mission whatsoever. What would Jesus say to us when he sees the American church's mode of operation? Well, perhaps he would say what he said to Laodicea, or maybe even he would say that to this church. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich 
and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with what? Eye salve, that thou mayest what? See. He says to us, how can you not see when I have said it plainly that the harvest is ripe? When you see all about you, there are sinners of every stripe. And yet you don't see that as a ripe harvest, do you? You think yourself rich, but poor, wretched, miserable, blind, and naked. He says, anoint thine eyes with salve and see. See the great harvest of souls. So we are called to go into it. We are called to gather his sheaves and bring his sheep into the fold. And so having considered the harvest, let us consider our second heading, which is Christ's laborers. Let's consider the men and their methods by which they bring in the harvest. Um, Let us first ask this question, though. Why did Jesus Christ use men as laborers? Well, we have to understand that the Lord, uh, the nature of God, right? The Lord is pleased to use means. He's pleased to use means. And even here in his incarnation, he sends men out before his face. And he is pleased to use men to uh, be the means by which to minister the gospel. The Holy Spirit dwells in them. These are men of the Spirit, and the Spirit ministers the word of God through these men. And if we miss this just basic point of theology and doctrine, we will miss the need to send them out. You remember the great gospel promise in Romans 10.13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Praise God for that, right? Praise God for that. Whosoever. This is, as we considered it recently, the free offer of the gospel, the means the Lord uses to draw in the elect. We don't know who the elect are, as we heard in that sermon, so we go everywhere with that message, don't we? Are you a whosoever? Come to Christ. If you call on his name, thou shalt be saved. That is the promise of the gospel. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whether you are man, woman, child, whatever kind of sinner you are, if you think of yourself as a gross sinner or you think of yourself as a slight sinner, though we are all great sinners in God's eyes, call on his name, thou shalt be saved. But how does one even get to hear that promise? Well, Romans 10, 14 asks the question and answers it. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? You not see that the apostle himself has this kind of anguish here. How are they going to call on the name of the Lord? They have not, uh, if they uh, don't know to call on the name of the Lord, how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without what? A preacher. Without a preacher, a gospel laborer, men ordinarily will not call on the name of the Lord and be saved. So we have a precious promise, but it must be delivered to the ends of the earth. In the next verse, then, in Romans 10, 15, he asks, how shall they preach except they be what? Sent. Sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. You know, in a sense, the Bible says these are angelic men in a sense, because they bring the message of the gospel, that they are messengers of peace, ministers that bring the world, as the angels did at Christ's birth, glad tidings of great joy, a message of reconciliation 
from God to man in Christ. And as we consider our need to pray for them, and perhaps if we are called to be one of them, look at how beautiful their feet are in God's eyes. Why are their feet beautiful? Because it's their feet that carries the gospel of peace into the harvest. See, it's a sense in which they are to go and not just stay, right? They, they go into the field. They're meant to carry and travel the message of reconciliation to the world. And how blessed their mouth is when it is used as the gospel trumpet. And I will just say, because we have, I think, a, a, a very incomplete picture of the ministry in the American Reformed Church, their labors are often summed up with a very profound word. And you can use this word, it's the word in gathering, in gathering. And the fact that ministers forget that they are described in so many ways as those that are meant to ingather the flock is why oftentimes they are not fulfilling their ministry, as Paul exhorted uh, Timothy to, by doing the work of an evangelist. In gathering men. What is this ingathering? Well, it's bringing men in from a perishing world and into God's blessed kingdom. You know, the Lord Jesus mentions twice in verses 9 and 11, the kingdom of God. I'll get to that in a bit. But the aim of their ingathering labor is beautifully summarized in Colossians 1.3, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. That's the gospel translation where you take men who are dead in their trespasses and sin, by the Spirit, of course, by the word preached, and translating them from darkness into God's marvelous light in the kingdom of his dear son. That's the ingathering. And how blessed you are, my friend, if you have been translated by the good news. And what I want those of us to see here who are not even ministers, but uh, especially those of us who are ministers are called to the ministry. The Lord in his word uses a variety of analogies to portray ministers. And what dominates among them is, uh, and they tie, he ties their heavenly labors to, to the labors of ordinary men so that we would get a picture of this. And what dominates there is this picture of ingathering, isn't there? Elsewhere, he calls them what? Fishers of men to bring them into, to bring men into the gospel net. That's in gathering. Elsewhere, he calls them shepherds called to leave like he does the 99 to go find the one to bring them into the sheepfold in gathering. In our text, they're called harvesters to bring in his crop, to bring in the sheaves in gathering. Elsewhere, he calls them heralds. He, they go before him as ambassadors, as in verse 1, when Christ sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. He sends these heralds before his face before he appears, that they would preach Christ before he comes. Their message is heralds, right? Repent and believe. Turn away from your sin and be pardoned by faith in Jesus Christ. Christ the King will forgive your treason out of compassion. Enter his kingdom, enter his gates, and be translated from that treasonous kingdom of Satan and sin and come into the king's kingdom. He himself will purchase your life. And that's the message. That is their labor in gathering. 
Now, what kind of men are called to do it? If we're to pray for them, we ought to know what kind of men to pray for. And as churches are called to elect men, as they are to be um, called to, to fields, we ought to know what kind of men we should choose and what kind of men uh, you ought to be men if you are called to uh, the gospel ministry. Well, the first thing to note is in verse 1. The uh, Lord appointed these men. And the Greek word there is actually particular to Luke. He, he alone uses it. He uses it here in Luke 1 and Acts chapter 1. Uh, the Greek word means to be publicly chosen and shown. Publicly chosen and shown. These men are publicly chosen, shown before the people of God and ordained. And that's a consistent theme in the scripture, the need for ordination to do gospel labor. Back then, Christ ordained them immediately as king and head of the church. Today, with Christ in heaven, elders ordain men. First uh, Timothy 4.14, if you want to look at that, they are ordained, as scripture says, by the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. And there is a tremendous problem, uh, especially in America, of men sending themselves. Now, I will preface what I say with this. The problem is because ministers who are actually called to go don't go. Other men with a burning desire go in a way they ought not to go. The problem is that those who are supposedly ordained to gospel ministry don't. That said, men who preach without a commission to preach as a gospel minister are often a problem. You know, one of the biggest turnoffs for most men in terms of seeing men do open-air preaching and evangelism is that they don't know how to handle the Word of God, and what they're used to seeing in evangelism is really a train wreck. And so when a minister says, I do open-air evangelism, people look at you like you're some sort of crazy alien. But... It is those who are ordained to the work, who are physicians of the soul, who know how to rightly divide the word of truth that are called to do this work. This is a solemn thing, beloved, because in Jeremiah 23, 21, you remember the Lord said, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. Romans 10, 15 says that these men are sent. If they are sent, somebody is sending them. We, I don't send myself. Uh, James 3.1 says, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Now, let me just say, being an ordained minister, that is weighty enough. To take that on yourself without even the sense of ordination, that's a hard thing. If you sense a call to the ministry to preach the gospel, don't quench that desire. Just go through the right gates. Be approved by a presbytery. Don't take shortcuts. The Lord does not want men to climb into the sheepfold in another manner. Go through the way the Lord has ordained in the word until that blessed day when you stand before a presbytery and you are ordained to the gospel ministry. And then you can boldly go with, with a level of confidence in the Lord that the Lord through these means, just as the means that he uses to save souls is the preaching of the word, the means that he uses to send men to save men's souls has been applied to me. And I can go with boldness. And that is what makes a man bold in the ministry to go into a place Jesus says is full of wolves. 
to be able to preach the word in season and out of season. I can say the king has sent me with a commission as he sent the 70 out with a commission. That if I am faithful to the word of God, I must trust that Christ will bless the preaching of the word. So these are bold men. They have a commission from the Lord, but their boldness is really out of, and it takes, let me just go back a step. It takes a level of humility for a man to, uh, to put himself before the Lord in that way. To, in, in our denomination, there's 13 exams in the floor of all of Presbytery, seminary work and everything else. It takes a level of humility to say, I'm going to spend years of my life being tried in this way before I will go. And it is those kinds of men that the Lord chooses to use. Their boldness is one of humble meekness. These aren't hard men. They aren't self-made men. They are gentle and meek. Even as they are bold for the gospel, these are men of compassion as Jesus is. In verse 3, Christ says, Behold, I send you forth as what? Lambs among wolves. Christ says that the field is full of wolves. But I send you as lambs in the midst of wolves. There are dangerous men who seek to devour and destroy. These are those of Satan's kingdom. There are going to be false religious leaders who try to keep sinners from Jesus. How many times have we gone out with the gospel and there's some cult, there's some false religious leaders, there's Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and whatever out there seeking to devour the souls of people. Think of uh, uh, all kinds of groups. But there are also civil rulers out in the world who seek, you think of our brethren who minister in places like the Middle East, who seek to devour and destroy the kingdom of God even as their kingdom is being dismantled soul by soul by Christ. Evil satanic men who seek to oppress the church and stymie gospel laborers. You remember one time we went out and there was a man who uh, almost seemed like he was demon-possessed as we interacted with him. But he is nothing compared to what we often can meet out in the world. There are those who are willing to jail or kill gospel laborers. And we have to know this. And the solution is not for these men to be hardened men, but to retain their character as lambs among wolves. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.12, showing this character, being reviled, we what? Bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. 1 Corinthians 4.12 They bless, they plead, they suffer. Why does a man do that? It's because he has been given the heart of Christ, hasn't he? Compassion for the lost, that he is willing to live a life of hardness, to be a lamb among wolves. He sends his men as lambs into a pack of wolves. And so these are meant to be men of dependence on the Lord Jesus. They are meant to be men of faith, men of prayer, men who entrust themselves, right? Not seeing themselves as the chief bishop and shepherd, but they are themselves shepherded by the good shepherd. They look to his rod and his staff to comfort them when they're among the wolves. Because Jesus plainly says, I send you among wolves. 
And I have long considered, as I even think of my graduating class and other graduating classes, that one of the problems in reform ministers today is many of our men want to avoid the places where the wolves are. And yet Jesus says, I send you as lambs among wolves. Part of the problem with ministry can turn into where men want ministry for a life of ease. They can enjoy, I enjoy the word of God, I trust every minister does, but their ministry ends up being something very polite. It doesn't confront the kingdom of darkness. It doesn't seek to draw souls to Christ and to be wise as a soul winner because this brings you into conflict with the world and you can no longer have that respectable look among society as one who will preach against sin and preach the free mercies of Christ and to go and exert yourself at a great cost. And so as the harvest of souls is dangerous and even deadly in places, brethren, we must not only pray for men to go into every dangerous place, but also pray for the protection of those men who are in these places, for they need it. Places like the Middle East or Asia, or even you think of even those places that polite people don't want to go in our own town, downtown and other places. But because... They are as lambs among wolves and their labor is dangerous. In verse 1, we find that he sent them two by two. He doubles them up. Instead of 70 cities, he sent them to 35. He sent them actually to fewer places. And the disconnect might come to you when you put few of these things together. You say, but the Lord Jesus said that the harvest is so vast and it's so great and the laborers are already so scarce Perhaps he should have sent them one by one into 70 places instead of 35. And we are to take note then, whenever we see something that seems so plainly contradictory, seems plainly contradictory. You know, our temptation would be to see the vastness of the field and the lack of the laborers and spread them out. And oftentimes the church is very guilty of that kind of thing. I'll have to say, even being on the home missions board uh, in times past. This is often the prevailing mode of operation for our churches. You consider how this church was planted. One minister, uh, four hours from the closest Reformed Presbyterian church. Uh, so I don't think that I'm wrong to say that we're not necessarily learning from this text. I also want to say on this text here, uh, as a congregation, we are to be sensitive to the providence of God. And I was thinking on this this week. Remarkably, you think on this, the Lord brings this text at just the time in which we have brought another man to come in and labor here in the field. These aren't random occurrences, are they? This is just, we've just been preaching through the book of Luke, and here we are. So we are to take heed of what God has to say, particularly to us in this matter. So why, with the scarcity of laborers, does Christ double them up? Well, we know, boys and girls, that Christ is the wisdom of God, isn't he? And we are to learn from his wisdom. He knows how to set up his labors for success. He is also the word of God incarnate. And if you find anything in wisdom literature, there is this prevailing idea that two are better than one. In fact, you might turn to Ecclesiastes, the fourth chapter. We'll spend a little bit of time here. I know our time is rapidly leaving me. Ecclesiastes 4 Verse 9, 
You can take note of this chapter for later as well. So you can see how to send men and how you may labor as well, not only in the home, in ordinary vocations, and any other place, because this has much application to all of us. Verse 9 says, Two are better than one, Ecclesiastes 4.9, for they have, because they have a good reward for their labor. This is very plain, right? Two are better than one. And if we want to see Christ is showing us uh, their labor rewarded, two will have a greater reward. There will be more souls actually ingathered by sending them to fewer places at first if we send them two by two is what the Lord says. There will be a greater harvest. That's one reason we are bringing in prayerfully Reverend Gunn, two being better than one. Know also this, that no single minister is omni-gifted. Every man has his own gifts. And that really ought to demolish our pride as ministers, right? This is why we even have a session of elders and a presbytery of a plurality of elders. We don't have bishops in the church because of this idea. A greater harvest, God is teaching us, Christ is, will come with two men laboring shoulder to shoulder. By faith, we must believe it, and by faith, we must pursue it. One of the great um, hindrances to this in the Western church is kind of this idea of hero worship, though. We tend to elevate men to areas and places they ought never be elevated. We often look to singular men in the Western church, especially. Uh, We have men who name their entire ministry after themselves, and we say, look at what this man has to say. You know, many of us are deeply appreciative of R.C. Sproul. However, I can't get a single communication from Ligonier without having his name all over it. Right? This is what we do. And we look at singular men. And our missiology is even today filled with tales of lone missionaries. We look at extraordinary men and we make them the pattern, but they are not. And that is why so many missions fail. It's because... Ordinary men go two by two, according to Christ. We look at even extraordinary men, men like Peyton and so on. And yes, God did mighty things, but they are not the pattern for us. This, the scripture, is the pattern. Christ blesses men that work shoulder to shoulder with no ego for a common cause, the ingathering of the flock out of compassion and not pride. Verse 10 For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. These laborers, as going among wolves, are going to be strained. They contend with the world, the flesh, and the devil, and there are, sad to say, casualties, as in every army. And our presbytery is full of them, sad to say whether it is spiritual or even ministers struck with disease and grave illness. But when there is a casualty and one falls, the other will lift him up. And the gospel will continue to be preached in that place. 11, verse 11, Again, if two lie together, then they have heat, but how can one be warm alone? You know, you think about the the mission field, whether it is in a lonely place in America or a lonely place, which is even more lonely, probably outside of America. There can be a coldness and loneliness in the ministry. 
And the fire of the Holy Ghost is kindled when there are brothers together laboring shoulder to shoulder. They can pray with each other. Jesus promises where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. The Holy Spirit comes. The Spirit of Christ comes. And that is warming in the midst of ministry's difficulties to have another who will open the word of God and say, Brother, look at the word and the promises of it. Let us continue to labor for the Lord's sake. There's warmth in that. And if one prevail, verse 12, against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, this is a wonderful thing when we think of men being sent into a pack of wolves, right? Two together cannot be contended against easily, and a threefold cord is not easily broken. I've always been encouraged to preach with other ministers in the open field. Uh, It is much harder to prevail against two men of God together than one. If one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. It was even an encouragement on Friday night to have Pastor Sanders there, even to swap uh, the stool, so to speak, so that he may continue and I may uh, uh, observe and pray and and minister and and vice versa. But even when another minister is not there, uh, one of the blessings about our congregation is how many of you go with me when I go and preach in the open. Uh, When we go together, including you children, even though none of you preach, there is strength in the gospel going out from a multitude of men, women, and children. Uh, Your prayers lift up our labors before the God of heaven. The psalm singing from the heart proclaims the good news as a congregation. We even sang Psalm 67, which we will close with here, in the midst of God's uh, enemies. And this strength makes it seem as if none can withstand the gospel when we go out like that, because a threefold cord is not quickly broken. In addition, the law of God says, in the mouth of two or three, so we'll leave Ecclesiastes there, in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Jesus cites that Old Testament law in Matthew chapter 18, and Paul does in 2 Corinthians 13. But think on that for a moment. The word and the witness of the word finds greater success. The the word, uh, the testimony of Christ is established by two or three witnesses. And the way we have to see that in the proclamation of the word is that the Lord blesses that means of witness bearing. And will the Lord not vindicate his ways in the word of God when we follow them? Yes. And we will say to the Lord then, everyone will see it's because of the Lord's wisdom that the gospel has found success. Not because I am a great minister, but because we are following the Lord's ways and he will get the glory. A matter of ecclesiology as well, and I think I can can cover this. Uh, As you might know as Presbyterians, and this is based on the word of God, but good and necessary consequence, it takes two ministers to form a presbytery. It takes two ministers. We don't allow one man to do anything in church government, right? Lest we end up with popes. But with two men in the mission field, they can establish a presbytery. And that what is, happens with the presbytery is then you can have a self-propagating church and denomination at that point. Native and indigenous. Yes, we remember Peyton fondly, but he never established a presbytery because he was all by himself. And so there's no Reformed Presbyterian Church of the New Hebrides. So let's not neglect the wisdom of Christ in sending men two by two. Because we ignore it, the church has found 
great weakness. Well, these men are given a particular message. Jesus tells them in verse 9, preach that the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. It's come near unto you in the preaching of the gospel. What is happening is they are opening the door of mercy to those who hear. Come into the kingdom. Come because I am an official herald of the king. Come through the word of God and the spirit into this place of refuge. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. He is opening the gates of the kingdom to you. Come and enter it. Flee the wrath to come because that is what is coming on those who will die in their trespasses and sins. The kingdom of God is nigh unto you. But solemnly, they can also shut the door when the message is rejected. He says to his laborers the very same words. Wipe the dust of that city off your feet and say, the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But in that, he preaches judgment. If you will not by faith enter his kingdom, you will be destroyed by it. That is the sense. Because Christ the King will destroy the kingdom of sin and Satan. And if you are there, which is where you are born, naturally speaking, into the king of sin and Satan, when the kingdom of God comes, you will be crushed underfoot by the king. And he said it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. We've considered that before. Let me put it before you again. We'll consider it next week too. No, not next week. Uh, later too. It's because Sodom never got to hear the preaching of the gospel. So there was that uh, wonderful and horrible book by that old minister that said Sodom never had the Bible, showing that this is a far greater sin to shut the door of mercy when you have heard Christ preached. What we have to see, brethren, and we actually, uh, two of our brothers spoke to a woman who um, uh, at the, on Friday night who saw the ministry as kind of a joke that men get up and they speak about, uh, they make uh, funny jokes in the pulpit, they entertain the goats essentially. And she didn't have the theological framework to say it, but that's essentially what she said. And the problem in the ministry is that evangelism and missions are not done for our amusement. These are matters of life and death. Men are going to hell. There is eternity set before all men who hear the gospel. And because of that, the ministry has become a joke because we ignore that. And even in Reformed churches, you have nothing better than the lecture hall. And you just learn some things about God, but you don't know God. This needs to be reclaimed. And friends, I declare unto you, the kingdom of God is nigh. That is my commission from the Lord. And if you have yet to enter in, enter it by faith. Christ is here. Take him by faith. Enter by faith in his blood that covers all sin. Don't leave here without entering the kingdom, lest you hear the kingdom of God is nigh on the deathbed and you end up in judgment. Take Christ, whoever you are, whoever you are, if you believe on the name of the Lord, thou shalt be saved. Come now. With that, we'll conclude briefly, I trust, with Christ's urgency. In John 4.35, when we consider the harvest, all Jesus could see is urgency. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. 
Don't say the harvest will come in four months. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. What is Jesus saying? Don't tarry. Don't say the harvest will come in later on. He's using an agricultural analogy. And he says, don't use the analogy of the harvest too far. Don't say one day it will come in and uh, it'll ripen someday. It is now. The time is now. The harvest is ripe now. And what? why would he communicate that to us? He is saying, don't tarry. Don't wait. You are to have urgency in going to the harvest. Not saying it will come, but instead it is here. Are we saying that? The harvest is here. We must look at Fairview. It is white or ripe already to harvest. We must look at mid-cities and say white or ripe already to harvest. We must look beyond our shores to China, to India, Japan, Asia, wherever, Africa, white already to harvest. And we are to have some sense of urgency about it. Missions, foreign and domestic, are not a matter to be trifled with, according to the Lord. We have a sense of the holiness of God in worship, and we must, but it seems like we have no sense of the holiness of God in missions and evangelism. Every place on the map without a gospel witness should pain us. Why is there no witness there? There are no laborers to go there. And the thing is, friends, when we sometimes say, well, we don't have the resources, we don't have the men, what's the remedy? Pray. That's what he says. The God of the harvest, who can supply all of our need, can give more than we can imagine for. He will send them if we pray. But why do we not pray? Is it ignorance? Charitably, I might say that. But I think some of it is just we are spoiled self-satisfied and self-centered. You know, we have the gospel here. We hear of Christ every week and we have eternal life. And we don't pray for others to have what we have. You know, I was convicted of this. How many congregations will not pray for a minister until their own pulpit is vacant? That's a terrible thing, friends. If this pulpit were vacant, I think you would pray, Lord, send us a man. But when we look out there at the harvest, why are we not praying for them? No compassion for the lost, no weeping over souls, and so there is no praying for laborers. These things are all tied together. And we do not pray for as many laborers as we need to pray for. Christ is saying, whatever you think, pray double. Pray double. Christ said, send them two by two. So pray for double what you have been praying for thus far. We are not praying for enough men. And can God not supply what we ask for? Philippians 4.19, is this not the need of the church? What does God say? But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. We pray by promise and remember that he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. But as James chastises us, we often pray for our own lusts. Not the things that are needful. And one reason the church lacks power is that we pray for carnal things. Even edifices for our own vain glory. In building projects. Not saying that buildings are wrong. We're meeting in one. 
but they're often vanity projects. Whereas the Lord says, pray for men filled with the Spirit to go into the harvest. But we must not only pray, we must seek out men and encourage them as well. Paul told Timothy to look for faithful men to entrust with the gospel, 2 Timothy 2.2. So men and sons of the congregation, who here will hear the Lord, the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who will answer as Isaiah did? Right? It's a mournful question before I get to Isaiah. It's a mournful question that the Lord has to ask. But who will answer? Here am I, send me. Willing to consecrate yourself to the Lord, to go under presbytery trials, to be sent out among wolves as a lamb, perhaps to the slaughter so that you can preach the glorious gospel of grace to sinners and receive the only commendation that matters. Well done, good and faithful servant. If you're not called to go, at least pray that other men would. In any case, time is long gone. Just have compassion on the lost all around us. And perhaps you will pray for laborers. The harvest is ripe. See it, believe it, and plead with God that more men would be sent so that Christ ultimately would receive the reward for his sufferings as he has promised to receive from every nation, tribe, and tongue. The promise of the 72nd Psalm that would come to fruition, and men shall be blessed in him, and all nations shall call him blessed. If for no other reason, pray for laborers that your Lord Jesus Christ would have this seen in our day even. And if you are in the kingdom of God by faith in Christ, go home praising God because he sent someone to you with the gospel out of compassion and love. We'll leave Luke there for now. Let us arise for prayer if able. O Lord of the harvest, we pray that thou would send more men into the harvest, more men than we had even anticipated Many men, Lord, you can supply all of our need, and this is the need of the day. We don't need more politicians in Washington. We need more men for the fields. Lord, we pray that you would raise up gospel laborers, men who would be willing to lay down their life for both God and neighbor, not to bear a sword of arms as the world bears it, but instead the sword of the Lord, the everlasting word of God, that men would be turned from darkness and enter into the kingdom of God. Help us to pray for and support missions, domestic and uh, foreign. Help us to pray for evangelistic efforts to bring in the harvest that are all about that is all about us. And may all of us, Father, if uh, well, if any of us don't know Christ, may they see today the compassion of the Lord on the lost. May they enter His gates through faith in Jesus. And may they come into the kingdom of God. Would you do this, Father, by your spirit? And for those of us who have come, may we go home blessing thee that thou hast had compassion on us and hast done great things for us. And may we then publish that news to everyone that we come across. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.